Hello all, it's James the producer here. I'm just quickly stepping in with a message of warning before we start, because this episode contains some colourful language throughout. Of course you'd come to expect this with Mark Ritson, but I thought it'd be worth letting you know in case you have any kids around. That's enough from me, let's get on with the episode. And it's just cliched nonsense. The CFO is not a fucker. Yeah. You do get that moment where you go, oh, yeah, it's me now. That's right. <laughs> I'm the rich fat guy with nice wine. The CFO is just has had to put up with four or five completely useless idiots in the CMO chair. We've been talking about the pipe that we shove the shit into and not yeah. worrying about whether the shit is any good in the first place. <laughs> sure you fucking do, but your boss is going to say, yeah, that's great. Get your ass back in the office. They love being told when it's a load of shit. Jump out the window, we're all fucked. Everything's reversed and upside down and read my new book. So this is the Uncensored CMO looking for the most uncensored guests. Who does he get? None other than the most vocal marketing professor on this planet, Mr. Mark Ritson. This episode will not disappoint. I promise you that. How on earth did Mark end up going from teaching 100 people a year ago to 4,000 people online? What does Mark think about the new normal? and how we should be marketing ourselves in a recession. What does Mark think about digital? The D word as he describes it, and whether or not we should have digital experts in a marketing team. And more importantly for me, what makes a great CMO? It's not what you think. And why also sat around the boardroom table are not necessarily the smartest people in your business. So for this and many more things that can only come from Mark Ritson's mouth, this is my interview with Mark. Ah, there we are. I told you, didn't I? I said he'd have a beer in his hand. <laughs> good stuff. How's it going? Yeah, good. Really good. Um, what's going on down here? We're COVID, pretty much COVID-free in Tasmania, but yeah. we also can't go anywhere. So it's kind of, you know, the, you know. Because I read, I'm sure I read somewhere that Tasmania is one of the few places that hasn't had any deaths from COVID. No, we had a few deaths at the start, maybe six, but we've had no cases yeah. in 64 days. What happened was we got one person in quarantine two days ago. Got it, um, but it was in quarantine. I mean, that's the whole point of quarantine. So we're all we're mask free and everyone's shopping and having beer and stuff, and it's pretty normal. Yeah. It's pretty normal. Yeah, we're sort of like um, we're teetering a little bit. We've had a couple of towns in go back into lockdown. Leicester and Blackburn are now sort of regionally locked down. So, and the death rate is still a hundred a day, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, Australia has nowhere near out the woods. No, and it, we, no one's talking about it. Australia, since it began, has had just over a hundred deaths, uh, and UK gets it every night. You know, and we aren't doing anything different. Yeah, it's I don't know. It can't be explained. Do you know what I mean? We literally have had almost yeah. no deaths. Yeah, that's no, insane. So let's start at the beginning, if we can. Um, I'd love to know how on earth you got to be sat here, and uh, and you know, tell us the journey you've been on. Oh, look, it's, I mean, how would you split it up? I've always done marketing. So I'm not one of these people that came to marketing when I, you know, when I finally realized how good it was, I did it from 18 onwards. I did my degree in it and then my PhD in it and my work in it. So I guess, yeah, I was a PhD. I was a student of marketing with a couple of years of work. During my late 20s, I became a professor and then I became more recently a non-professor um i guess they're the three phases really um yeah you know and and really being a professor of, of marketing ended for me about seven or eight years ago and the consulting work was really what i did most of the time john so yeah i'd say um 
that's been it really being a professor of marketing initially of one flavor or another and then really consulting and now the new section of my life is mini mba which will be the last one i think till you know it's doing well enough that it's my main focus now so i'm i am a, a virtual professor at best you know and i, I, I yeah. i've got four thousand students at the moment and um that's more than i've ever had but i've never left my home so it's very interesting that's amazing isn't it i mean it shows what the uh, i guess it shows the power of the internet doesn't it or, or the power of being a virtual professor compared to an actual one it was really was more it was a more selfish decision john in the sense that i we had our our daughter and I was doing two weeks. I mean, my consulting life was proper consulting. I was doing about two and a half weeks a month international travel doing work. And with my daughter on the way, I realized I couldn't do that anymore. And so we, I really did try and work out, well, what can I do that's scalable and doesn't and can be done from home? And so that was what, 2017, we launched Mini MBA. And the only thing that drove me to it was I was by then an adjunct professor, which means I'm not a real professor. <laughs> I've always wondered what that means. Yeah, it means nothing, basically. It means, you know, doesn't matter. But I had the chops of having done it at some top schools. And at the same time, I could do a digital course um, and no one could stop me. But I also had the chops of doing it properly. And if you look in the world right now, there's people that, other than Scott Galloway, is probably the only other one with, with the chops... There's people who want to teach digital marketing courses, but they haven't taught in real classrooms, pro proper advanced marketing. <laughs> and then there's a lot of professors, very good teachers, who would not be allowed or don't want to go and teach in the virtual space. So there's a really interesting tiny little Venn diagram there at the moment. Um, and it's incredibly lucrative. It's incredibly um, convenient for everyone. But the thing that's blown me away, and I'm, I'm not bullshitting, and I didn't expect this to happen, is that my last class of teaching actual brand management to actual MBA students last October coincided with teaching a section of it on the mini MBA um, at exactly the same time. And what was most difficult to accept was how much more my online class were learning versus the ones in the real classroom. And at that point, wow, you realize yeah. you've got to pack it in. Um, and that I was yeah. never expecting that. You know, I expected money and convenience and bigger class sizes. The thing that really blew me, uh, blew my socks off was, it was clear that my online class were learning so much more. And when that happens, you go, oh, hang on, there's something else afoot here, which obviously COVID has contributed to since. But the business schools have got a problem now, partly because of COVID, but longer term, because there is a model here that will change things, I think. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because I was thinking about this because I think in my, in my marketing career, it's surprising how little investment and focus there is on, on professional training. If you're an accountant, you have to do the training. There's no ifs and buts. You have to do it. And if you do it, you'll get a bigger salary, you'll get a bigger job, you'll progress up the, up, up the chain. But the thing with marketing is there just isn't that expectation. Um, and I found with some of the teams I led, I'd give them books, I would go and recommend speakers. And it... it it's really hard for some, I don't know what it is about marketing people. Um, it's really, you know, so it's, so I, I, I mean, have you found, I mean, I think you're filling an incredible gap there, um, which is probably part of the success, but. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I knew there was a market there. I mean, I, there's a couple of segments we serve, right? That we were, I was very conscious of at the beginning. There's a, you know, about 50, almost exactly 50% of marketers don't have what I would call 
proper training. Now, that doesn't have to be at a university. It could be IPA. You could have gone to an internal training at Unilever. You know, it doesn't have to be a bloody degree. It isn't just going on the internet and watching some talks and being self-directed. That's not what I mean, you know. And so about 50% of marketers don't have that. And it's not just that they don't have it. It's that they really think that that's awesome and not a problem, right? So we had a poll in Marketing Week a couple of years ago. Do you think marketers need training in marketing? Um, and more than half said no. Right, they 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 were the dominant view. <laughs> the half that hadn't and they got the training. Right, and they're they're usually the half that don't. Right, and so I get a lot in America. It's legion at the moment. You know, you, you can teach yourself, and I'm pr and they're not just so they're not just you know I don't have any training. It's okay. They're proud of not being trained, and they give me all this shit with metaphors about. You know, you know, some guys are just good enough to go straight to the MBA, and you know, it's about creativity and not following the rules. And I say the same thing to all these guys. I hunt them down on social media, and I say the same thing to all of them, which is after they've talked a lot of shit about basketball or whatever fucking metaphor, I go, you know, uh, uh, that's great. I think being trained in marketing makes you better at marketing. That's a pretty reasonable statement to make, I'd have thought. You know what I mean? I mean, and to be fair to those to those people, they do call out the fact that a lot of training in marketing is shit, and that's a fair point too. We've got to point point the finger at marketing professors that don't do marketing. They're a joke as well, as much a joke as the people that are saying I don't need to be trained. So there is a there is a case on both sides, but I love it. It's a massive niche for me and a few other people. Um, and I think that's, you know, that long may it live. I'm not one of these people that, you know, everyone goes, oh, the state of marketing's bad. And what are we going to do about it? I'm like, fucking great, you know, because the good marketers will smash it. And there's room to train ones that want to learn. And, you know, what a lovely opportunity, you know. Well, we'll come back to it when we talk about advertising in a recession. But it's a bit like that, isn't it? If, you, if you're going to get, get the training, you're going to stand out a mile. Which probably brings me nicely on actually to chat about the, the CMO role. I mean, something that re something that really frustrates me is how illiterate so many marketers are when it comes to uh, their role in the business, the fact that they're building strategy, executing the brand plan, and they should be all over ROI, managing the commercials of, of the organization. And I find so many marketing people I speak to, they think their role is the communication. You know, I mean, I, th I think you had a survey, you shared a survey on LinkedIn fairly recently, which brought this to life brilliantly. And, and it's just that reputation so many marketing departments have and senior marketers have that you're basically in charge of the coloring in. And, and this, this is a real frustration of mine because I can't think of a role in the C-suite, if you, if you use the American phrase, that has as big an impact on the company's future performance and growth and performance than the CMOs. And yet it can be relegated so easily to, a well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll leave them to do the, you know, the, the pretty stuff. The, the bit at the end sort of thing. Look, it, we can talk about it in quite specific terms. It's about 8% of the marketing challenge, right? If you if you broadly slice up marketing into doing the diagnosis, doing the strategy, doing the tactics, and in the tactical sphere, we use the old four Ps, which is still, I think, a very relevant model of product and price and place and promotion. Those things mean as much today, although the, you know what's inside those boxes has changed. There's still a nice way to think about the tactical piece. And therefore, we could say that place is a quarter of a third, which is about 8%. And that's yeah. about right. That's about right. And, and yeah, you're right in the sense that what we're seeing is, is you know, marketers that 
you know, why do they why do they focus on that eight percent? It's because as a customer, the biggest exposure to marketing is through communications. Mm. And so when you tilt it around and they get to do marketing, they keep that focus and they forget that yeah. the price and the product and the strategy behind it and the targeting and the ROI and the planning and the objectives and the ethnography and the conjoint that build that platform to make beautiful ads yeah. um, need to be in place. But they're not. And it's scandalous. But, you know, again, great, because there's a handful of good CMOs that know not, they're not geniuses and they don't know, you know, the secrets of the pharaohs. But they're well trained and they've learned their they've learned their trade well and they smash it and I can spot them because they they seek me out to have a chat to say well, what the fuck you you know Ritson what do you think about that blah blah, blah. that you know I, and and the ones that what that don't have that and that know that they don't really know anything they they avoid me like the plague like, it's not that I would say anything nasty to them but the good ones are like what they want to take your brain and go right what else have you got what about this I need to know about yeah. that. And you can see the good ones; they stand out a mile away. I think. I think the other thing that I've noticed as well, and I've been in this position a few times, is often, uh, often advertising and promotion is the biggest investment uh, a brand or company will make that year in 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 terms of discretionary spend, and yet so little time goes into evaluating whether it works and whether it pays back. And I think that's that's also where marketers lack credibility because. They expect to walk into the boardroom, ask for twenty or thirty million pounds or dollars, and then just get get it given to them without any accountability for the for the end result. I think that's the other thing I've seen consistently is the inability to track and measure and evaluate and justify. And I mean, I had a wonderful um, moment actually a few years ago when I was working on LucasAid, where um, we were we were going through a horrible cost cutting exercise, and the CFO said the last place we're going to go is John's advertising budget. Because I, I basically, you know, demonstrated the ROI and the future value and the share growth we we're going to going to enjoy. It was a lovely moment. <laughs> it was a rare moment, but it was a lovely moment. You know? No, and it speaks to something else, which is you go to these conferences and it's full of cliches about that. You know, why are we so short term in marketing? And our, the tenure of the CMO is getting less and less. It's twelve minutes now, and the CFOs are fucker. You know, ooh, boo, the CFO. And it's just cliched nonsense. The CFO is not a fucker. The CFO is just has had to put up with four or five completely useless idiots in the CMO chair and has finally gone, you know, if you can't show me a decent budget or a decent strategy, I'm not going to give you any of our money because it's not that I hate marketing or I'm short term, but you're a buffoon. You know what I mean? If if any of us had been CFOs and, and been exposed to the average two or three CMOs, we would have the same point of view about marketing by the time. Yes. You know, when, when, I, when I taught MBAs, it was all, I mean, it's happened in almost every class. There was an asshole in the back row. So my average MBA class, about 100 MBAs, there was always an asshole in the back row who would come after me in the first class, right? And say, well, what about this? And you don't know. So have you ever done that? And so you'd obviously, first of all, humiliate them and break them down so they're a little, little boy. You know what I mean? That's obviously what you have to do that first. But that person invariably became my favorite student in the class. Because if I'd have sat through a lot of the BS that's taught at business school, I, I would have probably been that, that man or that woman. Do you know what I mean? So I, that's what happens to the CFO. I think they start out with high expectations of marketing. But the way that it's done is so lackluster and as you say without ROI and, and by the way before we get to ROI and assessment I think the key to it is 
most of these campaigns are built without any sort of strategic idea what the fuck they were intended to do. Yeah. So, as you know better than me, if you haven't set up the strategic objectives before the tactics, you can, you can have Einstein running your analytics department. <laughs> what are you going to show that really, you know, you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, the, 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 the level is bad. And I think CFOs, they're not rocket scientists, but the, you know, the delta of, of how good or bad CFOs are doesn't really change that much. It's like working with McKinsey consultants. They're not geniuses, but yeah. the variance is really small. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> in marketing, the first question going into even a big brand when you're an old cynical person like me is, right, the first thing is let's find out if she's any good, right? And I don't mean, you know, yeah going to change the world but just does they do they know what they're doing do you know what i mean we don't help ourselves do we because we kind of like, i'm a traditional marketer i'm a modern marketer you know, I, you know i'm a digital marketer I'm, I'm a this school of marketer and and people or i changed my title to chief growth officer so you imagine like people are like what the hell you know wonder they're confused the cfo is the cfo and always has been the cfo no you're absolutely right it we've got crazy you know we've got everyone's this kind of marketer or that kind of marketer and no one's actually just a marketer do you know what i mean if you say you're a digital yeah. i mean i do have sympathy for digital marketers who are in a certain position in their career where they've been recruited to a certain job that says digital marketer. As long as they know that D word doesn't mean anything, and by 2025 it's going to be completely redundant. I mean, they've got to play the game. I get that, right? But CMOs changing their title to chief growth officer and chief customer officer, and, you know, it's like, guys, your children among grown-ups. There isn't a CFO in the history of, of corporate finance that's gone, well, is it CFO or is it chief revenue officer? Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd get you'd get thrown out of the, you know, the American Finance Association for even having that thought. It's yeah. like it doesn't fucking matter. Do you know what I mean? Do the job. Do the job. Yeah. Call yourself chief bin man, but sort the customer shit out. I mean, the, the, the digital one's funny, isn't it? Because the amount of conversation I've had where it goes, we need to do digital. And the whole conversation is, we're, we're going to do digital. And I sit there and say, why? Or, or what are we trying to do? Tell me what we're trying to do and then show me the answer. Don't go, we have to do digital because every other man and dog is doing digital. And I think this is why these big departments got created doing digital. And it's almost like, I mean, I know I, I, I laughed. I was reading up one of your articles the other day and you were chatting about how it was the first time you were told, you, you were, someone said to you, you're too, too old. old. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I get no, that as well. Yeah. You start to mate, get you, it. You, you, you're not under 30, dude. You don't understand how you this became stuff works. The, you <laughs> became the old fucks that you used to talk about in a bar yes. suddenly, right? You went, oh, hang We on. are there now, my friends. I'm the old fuck now. Oh, hang on, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's true. And you look, get that see, moment, don't you? You do get that moment. You go, oh, yeah, it's me now. That's right. I'm the rich fat guy with nice wine. Yeah, fuck, <laughs> right. Now, I, I, with digital, it's interesting. There's so many layers of hitting it that... The, old, the, the fundamental layer of pushing back on digital is explain explain to me what we mean by that, right? You're a, you're a digital marketer. Yeah. Would you do outdoor advertising uh, as part of your remit, given it's mostly digital now, and given radio is you know more than you know, get, approaching the sixty percent download now, rather than broadcast over an analog device, would that be digital or not now? I'm confused, you know what I mean? And news media, you know, given that, you know, the vast majority of, of people are now reading news on a digital device, would you be doing news advertising in the news? You see, you know what I mean? And even the big guys that I do respect, like Ubiquity, 
you know, you look at their, their, the way they slice the pie and they've got, you know, digital video and you go, well, I sort of know what you mean, but I think we're going to have to be careful now because it's, it's video. Yeah. It's video. And I tell you what, I've done some work with Google recently. I, I you know, I'm, I'm struck by, a, I mean, I know both Google and Facebook have a bad reputation for various industry things. But they, they actually end up being possibly the nicest people in the industry, both Facebook and Google. And they're not faking it. They actually are very nice people. But with the Google team, it was like when I looked at some of their data, uh, without giving anything away, obviously, it, it's like digital video doesn't need to sit in digital. It, it really isn't. You know, if you look at if you look at all the breakouts of any chart you've seen in the last 12 months on digital, Digital video is doing things that the other digital things aren't doing, for starters. You know, it's long and short, kind of in equal measure. Yeah. And then within that, I wouldn't put – digital video is a basket where Facebook video should not be within a kilometer of, of YouTube in terms of all the metrics I'm seeing, not just from Google but everyone else. Not to say Facebook video hasn't got a place here, but it is not – by it's not ITV versus Channel 4, man. It's like, you know, yeah. whoa. Yeah. So I think there's room now to start getting the D word out a bit just because it, yeah. it does a disservice to everyone. Oh, that's really fast. I saw Orlando was doing something quite similar, actually, looking at the amount of attention that, that is captured on, say, YouTube versus Facebook versus other platforms and linking it back to the quality of the creative. And again, this is one of those no shit moments, right? But there's a very close correlation between how good the creative and how long someone's prepared to watch it. Again, no brainer, but but exactly. it's So that's the other dimension you've got is think about the quality of the work you're doing as much as, you know, as the channel you're putting but it John, on. But John, you'll never get that argument across anyone except normal people. So, you know, the idea that, you know, Nielsen put it almost, I think about 47% of, of effectiveness is the creative itself. Mm. Uh, most of the data I see puts it next to brand size as the big driver. You know, the, the number one thing you want is to already be a big brand. There's no doubt about it, right? That That's yeah. that's the that's the number one. Um, data to decisions, you know, they're the best guys on this, looking at advertising profitability. They have it as being double the value of creative. And they're right. An, an ad from Apple, even though it's shit, will be a great ad from Samsung with great creative. You know what I mean? Anyway, but yeah. with that aside, that one factor aside, which you can't do much about for the first 10 years of the business, yeah, creativity still and the quality of the ad still beats the medium choice and the recency and the frequency and the digital or traditional. But we just haven't talked about that for a decade. You know what I mean? We're not... We've been talking about the pipe that we shove the shit into and not yeah. worrying about whether the shit is any good in the first place. <laughs> and, and that, you know, if you go, I say to my, all the time to my mini MBAs, you go and tell your parents one weekend, oh, I learned on the mini MBA this week that the quality of an ad is more important than the play, you know, the channel that you put it in. And a good ad is really effective. And they'd be like, are you high? Of course we knew that. And I'm, yeah. Meanwhile, in the real world, <laughs> everyone's like, <laughs> and and you spent how much of my my inheritance to learn, to learn that? Yeah. But yeah, the only one, the silent one that no one understands on effectiveness is yeah, creativity. We forget about yeah, brands established brand size, not budget. That's not the point, right? Everyone confuses it with how much. Oh, of course, big brands spend more. Separate that out. Yeah. Just being a big brand doing a single ad. Because of the established salience, because of the established physical network, because of its pre-existing customer base, that will always be the unfairness of the game. Yeah, the yeah. the big brand wins. 
And no one likes that story because it's all about D to C and, and, and David's, you know, killing Goliath. But that's just the nonsense fables we like to talk about. That's not how capitalism works. In capitalism, Goliath beats the shit out of David about four seconds in and then goes off and eats a pie. You know what I mean? And, you know, look around you. I mean, there was a moment where the new David's, well, I guess, became the Goliaths with, with Google and Facebook, etc. It lasted about six months. And then normal service was resumed and the big fuckers fucked the small fuckers. And that's, you know, that's how capitalism works. And I, you know, all the time when I used to do actual physical conferences, you talk about salience, excess share of voice, big brands, multiple channels. And someone would stand up and say, yeah, but I, I, am an, I, I, I have a small brand and I don't have the money to do those things that you're talking about. And in the old days, I'd say, oh, yeah, you're right. There must be other things. And now I go, I know. That's why you're always going to be a small brand and you're fucked because it's not fair. No one said this game was fair. Look around you. Do you think this is fair? I know you can't do A, B, C or D from my talk. That's why you're always going to be small. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark. I just thought I'd interrupt very briefly to tell you what's coming up next on the Uncensored CMO. I'm meeting the legend that is Rory Sutherland. Uh, for those that don't know, Rory is, uh, is vice chairman of Ogilvy and author of a fantastic book called Alchemy, which came out last year. It was one of the most fascinating reads I've ever had. He, he draws a light on behavioral science and why ideas that don't make sense can often be successful. People, in a sense, don't really know what they want. Certainly, they don't have introspective access to their desires, um, and they can't really describe what they'll do in advance, least of all in a public setting like a focus group. Because in the presence of other people, what we're really thinking is not um, what is the, tr the honest answer, but how does my answer make me look? How does come across everyone else? Yeah, totally. And so it had long yeah, been yeah. discovered yeah. in direct marketing that everybody in research would say, well, I'd much prefer to have three months free premium worth £90 versus a free clock radio. When you tested the two, uh, three months premium free was more or less worthless. If you're selling an intangible product, yeah. the uh, offering an intangible free gift is almost a catastrophe, which is why, by the way, the government is mostly squandering 24 billion a year on pension tax relief, because it's an extraordinarily unmotivating way of spending that money. And I've asked a whole bunch of marketers, uh, do you think if you offered people under 30 an offer which is sign up for an automatically increasing pension now, um, which increases pro rata with your salary, okay, or even disproportionately with your salary, uh, sign up for it now and get a free iPad. Would that be more effective? Cost, I think, about half a billion a year to do that, maybe less. Yeah. Okay. Would that be more effective at motivating young people to get a pension than the current system, which costs 24 billion? And every market I've spoken to pauses for a second and goes, yes. yes. I reckon so, yeah. You never walk past car Carphone Warehouse and see a poster that says, Get a new mobile phone tariff and we'll give you a great handset in 2047. Rory is one of a kind. Now, when you listen to the podcast, you'll find out why. You'll also discover that I don't get a word in edgeways. So anyway, but uh, Rory is gold dust. And actually, it's good that you hear more of him than you hear of me. Um, he has a real ability to tell stories and explain how marketing works and also to draw a light on how things really work using behavioral science. So this is a fabulous episode. Do tune in again and listen to Rory Sutherland. So I wanted to come back to something. Um, I remember uh, 
I was, I was listening to you in Toronto at the, the Think TV thing. And, and, That's right. You were there. What, what were you doing there, by the way? I was, well, I was actually meant to be in New York and, and Orlando said, could I come and carry his bags for him? You know, he's a, you know, he, he likes, <laughs> he likes some kind of personal assistance on these things. So I, I was literally his, uh, his, no, anyway, I was, I was in New York and I said, I'll pop over and have a listen. So, um, it, that's it why. Insane. Okay. Cause I remember you, yeah, we had a good old, but you disappeared then you weren't out when me and Orlando got, I, you know, I didn't get the memo about the uh, night out. I, I, I didn't get that memo. So I missed, I saw we Orlando. We went back from the conference, right? We went out to that after, after event and Peterfield flew home. And then, um, we just stayed. I, I mean, my strategy when in foreign cities is don't move. Everything will move around you eventually. I think we got about a block to some bar. And then he, he contests it, Orlando, but I'm pretty sure he did leave me there. But maybe not. I can't remember. I, I, I think I think I'd planned to have breakfast with him at seven in the next morning. And I've never seen him look. He, he, he could look sheepish on the best of days, but he was looking particularly sheepish. Oh, no. We, I, I, I rang his clock. Don't get me wrong. Um, I mean, I you know, I, I can't drink like I used to be able to drink when I was working for various companies in the booze industry but um when i'm off the leash now given i'm a father of small children i'm in a foreign country that that has a decent bar i'm like a tiger out of a, out of a cage you know and um i, I think but i mean i went i'd done about 20 million people on morning tv in canada before orlando worked out who he was the next morning you know what i mean we were like <laughs> we got two hours kit me and lauren we were out doing that was that was funny. I mean, there's footage of it somewhere. So I did whatever the main morning breakfast show on Can- Canadian TV is at six a.m. Right, and obviously she was super famous. Oh, you, you know, Canada's weird because I don't know anything <laughs> about Canada, right? So obviously she was super famous, and she was interviewing me, and she said, "Oh, you're from you know," and it was just daytime bullshit TV, and she said, "You know, you're yeah. from a you're from Australia," and I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." She said, oh, "That's fantastic. I love Australia." And it was during the bushfires, and I said to her, "It's on fire," and she went, "I know, I know, it's fantastic. You know, it's the coolest place." And, and I said to her, "No, no, no, it's literally on fire right now." And she went, "I know, I know, it's so cool." And this footage of me with two hours sleep and a wanging hangover, trying to explain to some woman with incredibly fantastic game show hair that Australia was currently going through this massive bushfire that she obviously hadn't heard of. Um, while 12 million Canadians watched over their cereal. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, but this is, this wasn't part of my flight plan. You know what I mean? Jeez. It, 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 do you know what? It shows what a, what a difference. It was not even a year, is it, since that event? Like, what happens in a short space of time? Bushfires to... Who cares about bushfires now, man? It's like, <laughs> small fry, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> and you can imagine in Oz, right? Because we never had recession, even during the GFC. So suddenly we've had that massive punch to our stomach, which is bushfires. And then we've had COVID. And, you know, it, for it, our generation of marketers down here, as good as they may be or not be, they've just not had that crisis moment before. To, literally, we haven't had that. So it's interesting watching everyone trying to get their heads around it you know well it is i was going to ask that because um you know obviously we're probably a similar age and i remember the 2008-9 recession and what happened then and and before that as well and and, um although obviously every time is different that again there are there are some similarities and and you just have that bit of maturity knowing that it's not going to be like this forever we will come out of it you look over the last hundred years and recessions happen and and recoveries follow um and I was really struck by your advice about, um, I mean, I, this is obviously what we base the webinar on in, in a minute, but uh, 
But what's your advice for marketers who are maybe going through this for the first time and haven't experienced such a shock to the system as as this? Because you you know, if you read what you read, you'd think that it's all over, everything's changed, and nothing's ever going to be the same again, which clearly isn't the case. No, it isn't. I mean, we've got, it's tricky, right? It's really tricky. I mean. I think Martin Lindstrom, who's a you know famed conference speaker and general branding you know expert, proving my theory that anyone that bills themselves as a conference speaker on LinkedIn is probably not to be trusted. Has been writing all these articles about you know oh, you know jump out the window, we're all fucked, everything's reversed and upside down, and read my new book because that's how the new consumer will be because it will be the inverse, and you need me now and blah blah. blah. There's obviously a market in in selling panic, fear, and change. There's not any market in the boring message that this too shall pass, and we probably will get to something else um, which will be more positive, right? And it won't look that dissimilar to where we are now. So, I mean, I'm you know I started off the crisis very clearly and deliberately saying, you know, we are gonna we're gonna have this weird time, and then we're gonna get a recession, and in recessions there's a playbook. Because unlike COVID, we know what recessions do. Having said that, I think I got it wrong, and you know, not completely wrong, and I still stand by that. The issue with COVID is it will be longer than we thought. Clearly, right? Mm. So, I, I still don't think I still think the consumer will snap back to prior behaviours. I still think that COVID is a catalyst of change, not an introducer of new variables. But that COVID period very clearly now is going to be measured in years, not weeks or months. And so for that reason, I mean, I was talking with the the CMO of, of uh, Boots Walgreens or Walgreens Boots. I forget which, which one it is, but he's a very smart CMO. And I was saying to him, well, you know, do you what do you his financial year starts September 1st? And I was saying, well, do you, do you have plans? And he's like, well, not really, because we don't know what's going to happen next year. And, and that's not because he's not good. He's very, very good. It's that all bets are completely off. You can't set yeah, a strategic same. plan. So I think that's something that I, you know, is properly unprecedented. But to your point, yeah, if you're a bit older, you know, this too will pass. People lose their shit on September the 11th or they lose their shit during the GFC or they lose their shit during the 80s recession. And at some point you lead your team through it and you, you look at, the next phase of the of the of the recovery where what do you know it cycles back again and the only good news in all of this is we were due a we were due a recession anyway i'm no economist but we were due one anyway and the worst thing that could have happened is we had the recession and then we went into covid just as we were going through green shoots that would have been worse so this will bring us all down for a long a long time and i think the recession is a big one but we know that all recessions literally have to end at some point. They can't go on forever. And that after the recession, after it's cleaned out a lot of brands and sorted out the wheat from the chaff, the growth period and the reestablishment of the market favours those that kept investing during the recession. And I think that's a very simplistic message, but it's still a good one too. You know, the relative game now is keep the lights on of your brand Unless you really are an industry like travel, where frankly you're out for a while here, um, keep the lights on, and when when we get back to growth, you know things will things will be better. Talking of travel, actually, um, uh, uh, Tourism Australia were advertising here a, a few weeks ago, 
uh, with a fantastic ad. Uh, it, it, was, it was probably one of the best COVID ads I've seen, actually, because it obviously referenced the situation, but it's basically stunning scenery of Australia and we'll meet again type thing. I mean, it was beautiful brand building. Um, and it was more salient, actually, because of the situation. No, no, Tourism Australia, they know what they're doing. I mean, I can't tell you we're the best place to visit, but I can tell you hands down it's the best marketed country in the world. I mean, there's no doubt yeah. about that, right? And so that's an example of it. I mean, even in Tasmania, we're facing a really interesting challenge because we won't get any international travel for at least a year. I mean, probably more. We, we, we're all aware of that, right? Australia won't reopen to anywhere except New Zealand for a year or more. Um, but the interstate thing between the different states in Australia is still, you know, we haven't got it right now in Tasmania. We're closed down to everyone. Um, and we're a state of half a million people. Um, and because we've had no COVID with one exception for two months, we have normal life here, but we, we, we are very dependent on tourism. And so, yeah. you know, I'm trying to make an argument at the moment that maybe or maybe not the premier is listening because he has to make a decision uh, on Friday whereby it's like for the good of the people, let's keep the barriers down, uh, barriers up and let no one in for good of, you know, social health. But for the economy, we should open the barriers. And my point is, Actually, for the good of the economy, you can make a long play that says if we kept th kept barriers up till Christmas, but also advertise to the mainland, we love you, we want you back, here's the beautiful scenery, um, yeah. one day you can come back here again, we would probably end up being up and protect our population at the same time. Yeah. But, you know, that's a, yeah. that's a hard argument for a bunch of hoteliers who are sitting with empty rooms right now who need money. <laughs> But, it, you know, the, it, it, there is a case to say, you know, our positioning is on being pure and different from the mainland, that having no COVID and being having a different approach from the mainland would not necessarily hurt our brand. So I, I don't think he'll follow my advice, but it, I think it's good advice. And obviously, Tourism Australia are doing exactly that. Keep the lights on because you get, you know, enormous attention because you're compared as a silent and because you get enormous media inventory bonuses. I've got a client who's getting uh, three ads for every one he buys at the present time. Yeah, I, you know, you're right. But I mean, th 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 this conversation is happening in so many boardrooms right now, isn't it? Where, you know, where the, the default position is cut. Like we, we must cut costs, we must not spend, we must protect cash flow, keep the balance sheet strong uh, and, and keep shareholders happy, right? And then you've got marketers based on exactly the insight you're saying going, actually, this is insane because all my competitors have gone dark. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and winning this argument is, is just so important. I mean, the opportunity is insane. And you're right about media costs. I mean, um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to sort of quote ITV rates or anything like that. But the discounts, I mean, we're talking half price land, you know, all better at the moment. No late booking fees. You can book a day before it goes on. I mean, the flexibility is there. It's just wholly changed as there's, you know, support for smaller businesses to get on air, uh, you know, sooner than they would do. It's just incredible. No, and we and, have, and of course, the other thing, the amount of people watching TV as well. It's also up 60%. Um, no, no, you're, you're right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we've got marketers that know this, right? I mean, there's Brent Smart, who's an Australian CMO, runs one of the big insurance brands down here. The day after it all kicked off, he was off to the board to get a 60% increase in marketing budget running just brand ads, because as he said, no one was worried about insurance. They are worried about rice and toilet paper. So he moved all his money to long, did three months of long work with a plus 60% investment versus his usual spend during that quarter. 
and then added the short with a new um, uh, lower priced uh, insurance policy for fire theft and damage for people that were you know pulling back on insurance because they were short of money and he's yeah. I mean he smashed it I mean he's, he's stolen the market Brilliant. there there are good marketers that know this I mean the problem is there are also good marketers who realize you know I work with a couple of good travel companies what, what are we going to do here are we going to really keep in the market you know if you're a travel agency or a flight you know an airline is there really, you know, can we really do much? Do we really want to stay out there for 18 months, two years? Because everyone else has gone dark. When in reality, the business is, you know, it's about pulling our heads in. Even if the theory says keep it stuck out, you know, it's a very difficult one. It is, it is. I think I think I read a headline that Air France were losing 12 million euros a day uh, just having the plane sat there. You know, so there are certain industries. Like, the flip side is... Um, chatting to a direct-to-consumer kind of grocery brand the other day, and they've done their entire annual budget already. <laughs> it's just like, and in fact, their problem is supply chain. No one's talking about it, you know, and probably for good reason. And no one wants to crow, you know. But um, retail, you know, grocery retail and and, and consumer goods companies uh, generally suppliers are up anyhow. So, yeah, there are winners in all of this for sure. I mean, and particularly because the consumer still has money for now. I think yeah. we probably will see a different picture over the next. Well, again, it depends how long this period goes on for. Um, you know, we don't, we're not going to get to a recession properly until we get through the macro effects of all of this going on. Do you know what I mean? Um, but again, I would still come back and it's a very unpopular point of view at the moment. But I'm always quoting Bill Burnback and I'm quoting um, um, Jeff Bezos as well. Both of them say the same thing. The, 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 consumer is relatively unchanging you know the you, you know your consumer psychologists who've got a book to sell are going to tell you how there's you know limited attention span and the world has changed dramatically sure it's evolving but the consumer is not that different from the one that was buying you know crates of hennessy in 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 1850 the general processes by which they decide aren't changing that that much they're, they're moving a little bit and COVID will impact that. But again, it, it will probably expedite a curve. It won't create exogenous effects that will change. They, they're certainly true right now. I mean, me not going anywhere except Tasmania is something I've never done in my life. But that's not a behavioral change. It's, it's enforced by the, the macro effects. When they are removed, and God knows when they will be, and COVID becomes a you know, low-level concern, my bet remains consumers won't go back to where they were in february of this year because they were moving anyway but they'll go back to that curve and we'll see that continue yeah. and 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 that's not cool but it, you know the, the bezos quote is the great one people keep asking him you know what's going to change in the next 10 years and he goes well you know i get that all the time no one ever asked me what's not going to change that's the biz that's the thing i want to know because i can build a business around that you know what i mean that's the, the that unchanging man and woman is yeah. the cool part. You know, that's the bit we should be focused yeah, yeah. on. I, I love that insight because you, you're quite right. It, you know, uh, consumer behavior is unlikely to change, but the context in which you're operating has temporarily changed, which is forcing different action, right? But that, but when, when things go back to normal, there's no reason to suggest people won't go to the pub, things like that. You know? no, and, and people are confusing those two things, John. So it's very important we make that difference. Look at all this data showing that people are worried about that and won't do this and aren't doing that. Absolutely. There's no one saying we're behaving 
the same as we were a year ago. Clearly, that would be ridiculous. The point is, when we do snap back to this, you know, everyone post September the 11th was saying, we'll never do this, we'll never do that, this will change forever. The reality was that wasn't the case. So let's see. I mean, having said that, this will be so big and so enormous that the connection back to February or January of 2020 versus where we get to where the vaccine arrives and all of that, it'll be very interesting to see. But yeah, I'm I'm a relative conservative on the, on this topic. I think, yeah, consumers want to go back down the pub and, you know, I mean, they'll go back to the office and they'll, you know, whether they like it or not, you know, again, this working, this remote working thing, everyone's like, oh, no, I really like it and all that. Sure you fucking do, but your boss is going to say, yeah, that's great. Get your ass back in the office. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have to say, I can't wait to get back to the office personally. There's a lot of people that's the case, right? But even people are like, oh, no, working from home seems to appeal to me more. As soon as they can safely get you back, clearly you're going to, yeah. most people will be told, get your ass back in the office. You can work from home on a Friday. Do you know what I mean? That, that's going to happen. Um, just, just come back quickly to the, to the CMO for a minute. So um, you did that quite amusing article about the monster CMO. Um, tell me what makes, in your opinion, a great CMO. It's a little different from the monster, right? So the monster we built from general marketers, you know what I mean? Like what's the general traits? So I'd say you can have all that base level. And then what you see in a good CMO, I think is kind of in, in a weird way, sometimes different things start to emerge. I think for many people who've never been a board level to interact at that level, it's not like I spend my life there. But I think the thing that strikes most, most of us when we start to actually go, oh, I'm having a meeting with the executive team or blah, 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 is that it's clear that the smartest people in the room are, are not here. <laughs> and and what's more, the people in the room will happily go, yeah, fuck, I'm not the fucking smartest guy, even in my team, never mind, you know, in the board. Um, the, the, political, um, the political skills become 90% of the job. And you see that in your late 40s, you start to see it. The men and women who are the smartest and the best don't progress anymore at that point. Um, the people that that were politically savvy in positioning themselves mm. are now the ones that move up. So for the CMOs that work, I'd say 80% of it is now politics. Um, you don't have to be a technically good marketer because you, you'll hire those people underneath you and build a good team. You have to manage the optics and manage the politics. And... People don't understand. I mean, marketers don't even realize what that means. Like, I mean, a good example is if someone asks a marketer, you really think we should focus on brand? And they go, yeah, we should really focus on brand. And they say, why? The marketer goes, oh, brand awareness, consistent look and feel, brand image. And it's like, for fuck's sake, they're the arguments that convinced you. No one gives a shit about that outside of your little tent of marketing. Yes. You know, the first lesson of what I call Frenchness is or politics, is stop answering questions and consider who is asking the question. If it's the CFO, the answer is different from the head of HR. Ask yourself the question what they're interested in before you start answering these questions, especially at that senior level. Or in other words, be market-oriented about marketing. And we just don't see that very often. So I'll take slippery political skills over marketing talent any day at the CMO level. You're right. And, and, and the shift between a functional lead, like a head of marketing and a CMO, is astronomical, I've yeah. found, in terms of exactly that, right? So I remember, I mean, people often said to me, 
they're surprised when I say I do very, very little marketing. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, if you define marketing as, am I involved in making the advert? Am I, you know, on the production line signing off the new recipe? Am I in Tesco looking at our displays? I mean, I mean, I should be, and, and, and I do as much as I can. But actually, I'm doing politics, internal communication. I'm doing strategy. I'm doing finances. I'm doing budgets. Um, I'm fighting for your existence, you know, trying to justify keeping the overhead going. You know, it's, it's that kind of stuff, stuff that, that yep, yep. people no, are really surprised when they look behind the, the curtain. There's no more marketing and CMO level for proper CMOs. There can't be. And, and you, the only reason we need good marketing skills at that level is they know how to pick the people that they will put in their team and manage yeah. their crises, right? But you're right. I mean, that's... That's part of the that's part of the issue now, and I've I've got good CMOs I still work for, who have, as I like to say to them, and I and, they, and I don't mean it as an insult, that they're a lot of C and they're not very much M. You know what I mean? And and that's yeah. the nature yeah. of the job, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and that's a loss because they were a good M, but really we need them to be a C yeah. and 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 pick good lieutenants. You know, and and, and actually, it, weirdly, that's the kind of situation I'd bring someone like you in. To actually do you know do the M in front of the board, <laughs> to, because they won't believe me because they're all politicos and they go, hang on a minute, we we can't trust John because he's probably got an agenda here. So <laughs> I bring you in and they're like, fantastic. There's two reasons I get that gig, right? One is as you say because they can brief me in advance and then have it come from someone else who's yeah. independent, and yeah. second, I can take bullets that they can't take, and so, I'm and I'm absolutely say, dispensable, yeah. which I completely understand. Yeah. I've been. One of my best mates was a CMO of a very big American company, and he shot me uh, in front of the rest of the C-suite with the argument that he'd given me to deliver. And, and you know, I took my bullets, you know, like a man and went down. And he was like, and everyone's like, fuck, James just shot one of his mates. And, and afterwards, we, you know, we let, you know, it had to be done, man. I'm, you know, we're not, yeah, consultants yeah. are not here for, you know, we're meant to be, either I make myself disposable because everyone's got it now and I can leave or they'll make me disposable because they need to get me out of the building. And that's exactly the nature of our, of our attraction is we can, you know, and I say to my clients, yeah, get rid of me as soon as you can, man. I don't want to be around for too long. You guys, you should be able to do this without me. I, I can go now. You know what I mean? It, it absolutely. And clients love that. They love being told when it's a load of shit, in, in my opinion, even if they disagree and they love being told, right, as soon as I'm done, I want to be out of here and you guys, do it better than me. You know what I mean? That that's what client, client yeah, leadership yeah. is is telling them. Look, it's the best thing. I, I did all this work with McKinsey years ago, and there was a great old partner that taught them all client leadership in the groups I used to work with. And um, basically, it came down to tell the client this is complete suicide, but then go over the top with them, so the client realizes at some point, Jesus, this guy was right. It's suicide, but he came with me. You know what I mean? Every other option is actually not as good. Like if he listens to you and doesn't go over, that's actually not as good a result. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You you want him to go over and get killed with you by his yeah. side and go, right, okay, oh, this guy's... Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's so funny, isn't it? It, it, it? It's sad that it has to be this way, but it, it's how it is. <laughs> so, but, I, but I love that part of it. I mean, there's bits of business no one talks about. Like I love the walk of shame, right? So I don't think... Yeah. In any industry, you, you, you can say you've been a proper manager unless at some point you get the walk of shame, which for our viewers is when you get fired without anyone telling you and it happens um, it happens by stealth. So someone from, from headquarters will come out from HR and say there's a meeting about something 
and you'll yeah. you know you're a VP. I mean you're on a you know million dollar plus salary, and the VP will sit down with you, and you'll have prepared something, and then the HR VP says you you don't need to do that. And a good a good senior manager will go walk of shame, and they'll go walk of shame, <laughs> and not not because you've necessarily- I've I've done a have you had the walk of shame, John? I've done a six month walk of shame, knowing it was coming, and I was kept on. To, to, to deliver all the KPIs. I hit every KPI. Doesn't matter. Awareness. Ah. Spend. It did not. And in fact, I knew I knew this game was up. So I actually, at the, at the I knew I had about a week left at this point. And in the, in the quarterly meeting where the shareholders from Japan flew in and the whole big thing, I went over the top, ticking every single KPI off, all of them green, just so I, so when the bullet was fired the next day, I could go going, this can only be <laughs> the politics, you know. No, no, and, and and I think with senior with senior experience, what you realise is, yeah, I mean, back to our point about politics earlier, you, it doesn't matter at this level if you've done it or not. If it's not framed properly and you're not the boy or girl of, of someone else, it's, you know, yes. you get a job for that. You lose and you start it. to read these things. So you, you get this instinct and... Yeah, because you you you've you've done it before, right? There's only there's only certain patterns that can happen, and so yeah, you know it's coming, and you go walk of shame. Yep, walk of shame. Yeah. So I think this is a good place to round off. Um, so if you want to avoid the walk of shame, ladies and gentlemen, listen to Mark, sign up for his MBA, <laughs> and employ him <laughs> to to take the bullets for you. That's probably the top <laughs> advice for this. That's pretty good. Yeah, this podcast. Amazing, mate. Listen, thank you for taking the time to do that. Thoroughly enjoyed it. My pleasure, John. Thank you. Okay, so that was my interview with the one and only Mark Ritson. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed asking the questions. Now, if you'd like to find out more, uh, please do click on the show notes below and subscribe. Uh, or you can find me at uncensoredcmo.com where you can also register there to find out more about future episodes and also get exclusive video content from each interview. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, please do. I can be found at Uncensored CMO. Uh, and finally, if you'd like to leave me a review, I would love you to. So please do go and leave me a review. And obviously, a five star is best. So in case you wondered. Anyway, but thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Do send me feedback and do follow me. And until next time, stay safe. Thank you. Thank you.